Hello and welcome to GradCast, the official radio show and podcast for the Society of Graduate Students here at Western University. My name is Roger Hudson. And I'm your co-host today, Ariel Frame. And today we have a very special episode of GradCast. We are currently on tour at the Canadian Association of Neuroscience Conference here in Toronto, Ontario. And we have with us Brian Jenkins, a first-year PhD student at the University of Guelph. How are you today, Brian? I'm well, and how are you today, Roger? Really, really good. I'm super happy that you're here. You have some super interesting research, uh, really relevant for the conversation that we're having today, especially. Um, You want to maybe just give a little highlights of what what you're studying and what, what you're doing here? Sure. Yeah, certainly. Thank you. Uh, so broadly speaking, our, our lab focuses on um, trying to understand the biological mechanisms that underpin uh, substance use and mental illness, the co-occurrence of uh, uh, both of these disorders. Very interesting. So uh, substance use, Do you, does your lab focus on a specific uh, set of substances? Yes, yes, most certainly. Uh, so we focus in on cannabis, uh, opioids, uh, alcohol, and uh, kind of the use of all of these substances in different combinations. In combinations. Well, yes. that's you know what that's actually a, a good point to make there because you don't have to look very hard to see uh, literature on on drugs nowadays. It's on the front page of any newspaper. <laughs> You're going to see some headline. But more often than not, if you dig a little bit deeper, the study was like we gave one drug, and that's good enough. But uh, I don't know if you've ever been to a party where someone does some substance. It's usually with another one, namely alcohol. Uh, but it could be any number of them, so that's really good that you look at multiple uh, simultaneously. So, what, uh, which substances do you look at together, and and what what are you finding? Yes, yeah, definitely. We've got some great research coming out from the lab. Uh, one of the graduate students in the lab looking at the co-occurrence of uh, alcohol use and cannabis use. Um, from there, what we're actually seeing is that it seems as though. Um, on the days in which an animal model that um, is not receiving THC, they're actually more inclined to drink alcohol. So it seems as though the kind of loss of consuming cannabis or THC is priming them for drinking more. So it has some interesting implications for those who are kind of using them in tandem and then, you know, maybe um, uh, uh, stop drinking alcohol and start uh, smoking cannabis or started smoking cannabis and stop drinking alcohol. It seems that they kind of influence one another and push them towards consuming more of either. So just briefly remind me that THC, that's the the stuff that gets you high in, in, in weed, right? Yeah, exactly, yeah. We'll, we'll, we'll call it officially the psychoactive component of cannabis, but That's yes, yeah, one. certainly. So let's just break that down. You go to a party, as people do nowadays, and we're in Canada, it's legal, because someone can perfectly pull out a joint and smoke. If you haven't had a beer that night, are you going to be more or less likely to have a beer an hour later? Is that, what, what, is this, what is this research telling us? So, basing on the research that we've produced, it, it seems as though in this dynamic that you're describing, the individual would be more inclined to drink the following day, having smoked previously. Oh, okay. It's yes, like yeah, when, the, exactly. when the weed wears off, it's exactly. not while they're high. Exactly. And that's exactly what we're thinking. We're thinking there's almost it's like you're filling this void with another substance when looking at this co-use. So how exactly are you giving the, these animals uh, the drug? And, and sort of which, which um, population are you using? Is this an animal? Uh, study or using more humans or yes no yeah we're using a, a rat model perfect okay and how exactly because I understand that uh, typically with cannabis uh, studies in, in rodents you'll be injecting the drug into them which doesn't really approximate how humans te- typically use the drug um, is there any efforts to start inhaling the substance for the rats or is there any difference between rats and humans and how they were to respond to that uh, yeah, yes, definitely. So, so uh, in our lab, um, uh, Dr. Gibran Kokar's lab at the University of Guelph, we use a number of different administration strategies for getting the, the animals to consume THC. Um, in this study in particular, 
uh, regarding co-use with alcohol, we were injecting uh, THC into the rats. Um, and we actually use a two-bottle choice paradigm, which basically means that the animals can choose to drink from two bottles in their home cage, one with alcohol, one with water. And then we measure consumption rates uh, when they have been injected with cannabis and when they have not. And that's how you're getting that co-use comparison. So um, just, just for instance, you'll have one day when they're injected with the cannabis and you'll see how much they'll drink. And on the next day, it's a counterbalance design back and forth. Exactly. Yes. Very yeah. Cool. Correct. Over time for sure. Uh, and then um, um, coming back to your other point about uh, the different administration routes, we are also um, uh, starting to use vaporization uh, to administer THC. Um, you know, you hear in the news all the time that you're seeing an uptick in the number of, of people, particularly youth, um, who are vaporizing nicotine, vaporizing THC. And so we've thought it was an important area to, to focus on now moving forward. And, and yeah, you definitely see um, kind of similar behavioral effects when administering THC in these rat models that you would see in humans. Um, so yeah, we're, we're very excited by the, this line of research. Hmm. It occurs to me actually, now that you've got the different like ways of taking it, do rats prefer one way or the other? Like if they had an, op I don't know how you would even really test that, but if you offer a rat, you say, hey, you want it inject, you want your, you want your weed injected or do you want it smoked? Will they choose one or the other? Yeah, so that's a great question. Uh, I, I can't think of any reason to really look at that right now, but but just kind of presuming from their kind of the kind of basic biology and maybe mammal behavior, I can imagine that the easiest thing for them would be to uh, eat it. Um, that's definitely an administration oh, route yeah. that's used in research as mm -hmm. well. But but you know, there's a really cool um, kind of experimental design where the rats can actually self-administer vapor. Uh, so there's this group out of the Scripps Institute, Research Institute, that's created a administration chamber. It's like a box, and the rat inside can actually press a lever, and that will administer vaporized THC. And so they're able to actually control when they get the THC. And so in that paradigm, you could probably actually start to look at the preferences toward vaporization versus eating it. Um, wow. With the injections, I can imagine that's probably the least favorable for the rat, just because there's some stress associated with that. So I guess inter interesting idea, definitely. I guess uh, what, what I had in mind there was thinking, like, if well, when, as soon as you have something legal, then the government comes in and says, okay, well, now we're going to tell you where, you where and when you can advertise it and who you can advertise it to. And obviously they're going to crack down. And uh, I think it's kind of common knowledge that <laughs> a kid shouldn't be doing this stuff. Okay. And now we're just working out, I think uh, cannabis researchers are working out, I wouldn't say we, maybe more you guys than me, <laughs> uh, are working out uh, when and where and exactly how much and exactly what is happening so we can actually know the bounds of what is bad for these kids. But if you know that it's one route is worse than the other, then you can specifically say, okay, let's say this route is really, really bad, like let's say eating versus smoking, obviously most people are not injecting, then, then maybe they would say on advertisements, if you're gonna do an advertisement for smoking, then you need to be even more sure that it's not for children. If, you know, they might have some restriction like that. I don't know, I was yeah. just thought, I thought of an idea. But if, another thing that I wanna ask you is that this is a hot topic, I mean, Roger, works with THC as well and cannabis and you work uh, you work on it you were talking about scripts people are working on it all over the place and it must be hot now in Canada specifically because it's legal so I wanted to ask you um, what it's like now uh, working in a country where it's legal and if ha things have changed since it's legalized and, and how about collaborations how about collaborations with places like scripts where it's not legal like has that dynamic changed so what in this current climate how is it what does it feel like to be a, a cannabis researcher <laughs> 
Uh, you know, well, it's still early days for me, having just started my program. I'm looking to uh, kind of growing along with the industry that's uh, that's now uh, being legalized and realizing realized in Canada. Um, so I guess on, on the on the kind of most basic level for that, um, you know, we're getting a lot of questions from kind of the public as well as other researchers, just exactly about the legalization uh, in, in Canada and in. Um, you know, it, I enjoy kind of having these conversations with people, so it's nice that there are people interested in it, and you're seeing an uptick in the number of people who are actually interested in researching it. Uh, we've got a great network at the University of Guelph. Um, a lot of people are, are kind of pivoting into this area of research as well, and we have some kind of big names in that field as, uh, also, so uh, it's good to be there for this. Um, and I'd have to say, though, that with specifically with the legalization of cannabis, it was really focused on creating a consumer market. And with that, uh, the research was kind of left out of the entire picture. So um, for us, from the researcher's perspective or research perspective, uh, it, it's, it's actually been a little harder than we would have liked or would have anticipated to acquire some of the licenses that uh, we would need to then ultimately do the research. Um, for example, you know, um, you know, any kind of user or consumer can go online and, and purchase it from a website and have it shipped to them in what, like five to seven business days, whereas we actually have to go through kind of this bureaucratic process to acquire a license and then identify an industry source and validate all of the, the pipeline basically for getting the product from the industry partner through to the lab. And on one hand, you can understand these steps are necessary in order to ensure quality and to control all of the variables that would come through some sort of distribution chain. But at, at the same time, if uh, from a researcher's perspective, and, and again, these are my opinions and, and just some opinions I've formulated reading a few things, uh, it seems as though there wasn't too much thought placed into how those pipelines would actually work with legalization. So there's a slight disparity there. Yeah, I mean, I, I would think that that's important. That's important for yeah, you know people on the front lines doing the research to get that word out because I think there's, uh, I think there's an idea that now you know floodgates are open and um, the government's you know saying like we did this because we we think it's the best outcome for the country in general for people's health and for um, you know safety and criminality and all that sorts of mm -hmm. sorts of things, um, but now it's out there. And uh, I, I get it, like maybe there might be a little bit more people using it, there might not, but either way, uh, it would be important to study it. And like, I think that's always been the argument. I would, I've been a little bit of a proponent for legalization for quite a long time. Yes. And one of the arguments is it's pretty, pretty um, to be honest, I think it's, it's almost offensive that, uh, that governments around the world say this thing is harmful, but we don't want to study it. And we won't, we won't allow people to even work it out. And the fact that we're now so behind on things like research on ketamine and psilocybin for like uh, PTSD and depression because of these like laws that just said, you know, no, 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 you want to alter your mind? Too bad, so sad. Now we're here where we have the opportunity, it's legalized. So help us work out yeah. actually what's going on Definitely. and we need to tell them what is needed. So it's, you know, great to have you putting it out there and saying, look, this is good and it's you know we understand what's happening but we need we really need you we you being the government to listen to researchers like you mm -hmm. and uh, and make this substance easy more easily available so that the studies that need to be done are being done yes yeah and if I can just comment on that quickly I think it's important to note that um, I think as the re kind of body of research grows into this area uh, and, and we're creating um, some good progress in this area, looking at the kind of positive and negative consequences of cannabis use. Um, we'll really be able to get it, start getting a clear message, which we can then take to the appropriate individuals and, and show kind of the importance of this research. And um, one other thing I would like to highlight is that there's this kind of 
perceived understanding um, uh, from individuals who are using cannabis that, that vaporized THC is perfectly fine for you. This, there was a report from the Canadian Center for Substance Abuse, I believe it is, the CCSA, that came out earlier this year, and they interviewed youths uh, age 15 and up, up to 25, I believe it was, um, and they had consumed cannabis, 30% of them had consumed cannabis in the third quarter of 2018, so right around legalization. 30% from 15 and up, so this is that critical, like, neurodevelopmental window yeah. your adolescence right when you're yeah, growing yeah. developing and so mm-hmm. that's a pretty high rate to be consuming that and then in addition to that um, they there weren't any perceived negative consequences of, of consuming cannabis and from so the vaporizing aspect from the vaporizing aspect aspect specifically they were they were thinking i guess the thought was that if i'm uh, smoking is bad for you because of just the kind of the the, the, the carbon yeah, exactly that are created with the smoking process sure. vaporizing is getting ash, around that ash or something yeah yeah, yeah. yeah i heard people the talk carbon about. soot or whatever i guess yeah, yeah the incomplete combustion okay, that occurs okay. with the kind of the the dried flower product um but with the vaporization it, it's completely circumventing that and we're hoping through the, the research that we're doing with the vaporization um, that we're going to be able to show that, you know, um, there are definitely effects that it's happening. And actually, we had a poster here at CAN, or at the Canadian Association for Neuroscience Conference. We're showing that uh, with the, the vaporization of THC, um, animals who have never received or consumed THC before um, show acute changes in the brain immediately. And these actually last for over seven days. And so clearly there's, there's um, some changes happening following vaporized THC. And so we're hoping that we can use this research to ultimately inform some educational initiatives that can then inform the youth who are, who are clearly vaporizing THC or vaporizing cannabis. So you are saying that and this is relative to the animals that are injected with THC. These are completely independent effects that last a week after a single exposure to these naive animals? Correct, yes. And they're completely independent of when you were to inject them, or are they along the same lines as an injection of the same dose of THC, would you say? So the doses have been, they're scaled, so it's it's, it's not really directly comparable to the injection. It's more uh, so comparable to um, the ways hu- way humans would consume vaporized THC. Sure. Um, so it's scaled down to the size of a rodent, or a rat in this case. Um, and the effects are, are kind of with THC, or, or cannabis, loosely speaking, are, are kind of, they vary um, across different administration routes. So THC is more direct and immediate, uh, sorry, injecting THC is more direct and immediate right into the bloodstream. Eating it, for example, it has to go through the digestive system, which actually converts it into a different metabolite, which can have longer lasting effects. Mm-hmm. Um, so a lot of people report after having eaten edibles that they last for you know upwards of eight to 10 hours, whereas if you're um, uh, vaporizing THC or cannabis as a human, it lasts only about two hours or so. So the, the, the effects are, are, are very quite a bit between different administration routes. So. And you also mentioned that, I guess, seven days after the, the initial exposure, these animals are still showing these, mm-hmm. these differences or these effects caused by the cannabis or, or the THC. I guess we're using them loosely, interchangeably here. Yes. Um, do you think that, because rats have such faster metabolisms relative to humans, do you think that these effects would last even longer in humans if they were exposed on the same protocol? It certainly could be the case. Yeah, again, that kind of considering that we scaled the administration down to a rodent model. You know, if you were to scale it back up, it could be that it's lasting longer than uh, longer than seven days. The, the the problem here is that for a lot of the research that we've read and, and kind of that we built this study off of, um, there's they're usually using a one to two week washout period. And by that, I mean, they usually allow for one week between exposure to THC or cannabis, again, yeah, using that interchangeably, um, to, to allow for the effects to go away. And um, what we're seeing here and in this research is that the effects may still very much be there. And so it's an important consideration for future research projects to really consider that window of time or that washout period between uh, exposure to THC. So some of the the next steps for this project specifically are going to be to look at how long-lasting those acute effects are. 
I guess I'm trying to put my 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 mindset in. The, uh, I'm trying to get into the mindset of uh, of a parent. I don't have any kids, but what would I what would I be thinking of to tell my kid if I heard this and I thought, what am I going to tell them about vaporized uh, vaporized cannabis? Um, I, am I telling the kid, look, if you do it, I know. You, let's say you knew knew your kid had never never smoked weed before, and the kid says like, hey, like you know. Timmy down the streets doing it like what well, everybody's doing it seems um, should I do it and and you you go to your kid and you say well the the effect is going to last quite a long time and I guess regardless of uh, we we didn't really go into what it exactly is doing to the brain but you're saying that it does last and that is just from the very first time so is that that's that's a worry that <clears throat> first time exposure is going to be specifically susceptible or is that different than people who have done it a bunch of times. Uh, it, it, it is definitely different. So, I mean, there's still much research should be done to kind of compare first-time exposure to kind of chronic use of, of cannabis. Um, uh, but but given that we are seeing the changes in naive animals, so animals who have never uh, consumed or uh, been exposed to THC before, uh, one can reasonably assume that, you know, that there's probably a compounding effect over time where people who are using it heavily um, will see that effect lasting longer to the point at which maybe it plateaus i don't know there's there's this is going to be ultimately my phd project is getting that longitudinal perspective or that perspective over time from adolescence through to adulthood of heavy cannabis use so coming back to your question about what to tell your parents i think or what the parents to tell the kids there's there's a need to be cautious in this approach as scientists because it's very easy to kind of lump um, cannabis research into a pro or con type situation and as scientists we need to remain as kind of unbiased as possible and so um, unfortunately I, I don't feel as though I can answer that question entirely just given that I'm also not a parent so I really I don't even know I can't even begin to think how I would I would handle that situation but I, I like to think as a scientist I'd probably tell them look there, there are THC induces effects or cannabis smoking cannabis will uh, lead to effects acutely uh, through like the psychoactive uh, experiences that, that users uh, have and then there are also effects to the brain that, that can be long-lasting so you know be aware of this if and when uh, you ever choose to to um, to use to use cannabis yeah it's not 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 as harmless as eating a sandwich per se <laughs> yeah 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 so and this is exactly up your area of research right Brian you, you are actually engaged in the vaporizing experiments with your rats and I, do you want to share any of your initial findings with us today you sure don't... sure yes yeah I'm, I'm happy to I'm actually quite excited with the results we've been able to obtain so far so thank you mm -hmm. um, so yeah as, as we'd mentioned previously we exposed um, rats to vaporized THC um, and what we were doing um, from there was to record from different brain regions um, as the animals were administered the THC to see what kind of electrical changes occurred uh, immediately following that THC administration. And so um, for, those of, uh, the, for those of you who are listening and are familiar with some of the brain regions, I'll, I'll, I'll list them, but um, um, uh, it's no, no real importance for what I'm going to say. Um, so we were focusing on the hippocampus, so um, hippocampus, dorsal striatum, uh, prefrontal cortex, and orbitofrontal cortex, and these regions are really kind of implemented, and broadly speaking, in, in kind of addiction pathways and, and the, uh, the effects of cannabis use, and so um, we, we definitely chose to target those regions. Uh, and what we saw was that across all of these regions, THC, when vaporized, um, uh, led to a decrease in uh, a signal frequency called gamma. Uh, and both low gamma and high gamma, so there's two kind of subsets of gamma in there, but we saw a decrease in gamma signal frequency 
across all of the brain regions. And that is what lasted for longer than seven days. So when um, we, we went and measured the animals again seven days later, um, we saw that this gamma suppression or this decrease in gamma was still lasting. And so the next steps from here would be to look at what that means cognitively. So we'll run the animals through the same paradigm or through the same uh, administration and recording. And then we'll also run some behavior to see how that kind of manifests itself. You know, you know it's kind of funny. I, I, it, it's really weird to say, but I... I'm really quick to anthropomorphize everything, including even parts of my own body. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we talk about neur- neurons, and you're saying, oh, the gamma frequency is different. I'm thinking, well, what does it feel like to have a gamma frequency <laughs> if I were a neuron? So nice. we're talking about neurons. What is a gamma frequency? It's this, uh, the rate these neurons are firing, they're doing electrical uh, signals rapidly at a certain rate, and gamma frequency is like a certain rate certain flow like a hum like mm, exactly a certain rate and that's just turned down they yes. don't have that as much yes uh, but the other the other frequencies were like okay so the higher pitch mm, that that that's okay and that didn't get changed but this certain one was like turn the volume down is that right essentially yes yeah we haven't delved too much further into some of the changes that we could look at that have occurred some of the dynamics of this electrical system that, uh, but yeah looking at just the suppression piece that's that's exactly what we mean and it seemed to only really occur in gamma. We had some evidence that there was a decrease in theta as well, which is another frequency band or another hum. Okay. Uh, but uh, but uh, we didn't really have too much evidence there yet, and there's just more to be done. Out of interest, this particular frequency um, is it what what is it known to be like involved in? Like, what does gamma do usually? Yeah, so well, looking at the regions that we, we had studied or explored in particular, I know that it's, it, it helps to kind of entrain other, other signals in the, in the process of kind of consolidating memories. I think it's also involved in some like motion or locomotor-based um, activities and cognitive tasks. So as far as I understand, it's a pretty influential and like a widespread signal. Uh, and then again, broadly, broadly speaking, all of these kind of frequency bands or these hums all kind of interact with one another and all... Uh, with like uh, with similar sorry hums or different hums uh, to c- coordinate communication across different brain regions. Mm. So this you're, is, th- you're throwing a wrench in the work by not having one, uh, well turning one down. Turning when you, one down. When you wouldn't otherwise have had it turned down. Exactly, exactly for sure. And so it'll be really cool to look at how some of the other hums change in response to that decrease in that in that gamma hum, and then. Uh, it'll be really interesting, as I said, for my PhD work to like look into how that changes long term and with chronic heavy use. Is that there's kind of a um, a reestablishment of a kind of threshold whereby the brain's balancing out all these signals because of that chronic use, and maybe that's contributing to some of the cognitive deficits you see or cognitive changes you see in in, in chronic cannabis users. Wow! Uh, and even uh, in the absence of use, this is what's so fascinating because, like you're saying, you're only seeing differences in the gamma and, and some changes in theta. Is, is that correct? Uh, yes. Yeah, there was some evidence for changes in theta, and it has been shown in some other literature. So we're going to dive a little deeper into that. Yeah. Sure. And, but but even though uh, the rest of these frequency bands or these different hums they're not being affected, uh, intrinsically, they are modulated by the gamma and the theta. So even though you're not seeing differences in these other bands, it, they're very likely uh, having modulations or, or changes downstream that you're not even able to pick up currently, potentially. Exactly, and that's a really good point to bring up, um, especially with the technique that we're using where we're implanting, recording electrodes into the brain, and we're only collecting these local fields, the local electrical activity, we're not getting single neurons. So it's really actually hard to say that you know, I recorded from this neuron in this region, and that's exactly what we got. So we're making an inference that what we're picking up mm-hmm. is related to signal in this, in this area. But you know, mm-hmm. if we shifted the electrode 
I don't know, whatever, a couple millimeters to the right, maybe we would have picked up some of the, the changes in those hums that we didn't necessarily see due Absolutely. to the fact we saw that decrease in gamma hum. I guess I, I picture that as like going going on stage at a, conf, at, at a, at a concert and asking the whole the whole stadium like what do you think and then like everyone screams <laughs> and then you like listen like i think i heard like something out of that whole versus like walking up to one person and taking them aside and be like so what do you think yeah exactly <laughs> so a few nice, extra yeah, booze sure. in that crowd and do the best <laughs> yeah, job there yeah. oh, a couple booze they're gonna be drowned out you know like all the general you're you're getting the, getting the scope of like generally what the brain is doing. Yeah, yeah, and we're definitely going to dive in deeper onto that. We're hoping to get some some greater resolution technologies so we can actually look at some of these kind of neuron dynamics and circuit dynamics in a better in greater detail. I'm wondering what your idea was about marijuana and uh, and kind of how you got involved in this research. Was it just something cool that you heard about when you were a kid, or did you have another reason to start your work? Yeah, yeah, no, thanks for the question. Um, so so I, I've always been kind of attracted to um, the unknown, I guess, and the illicit, right? I mean, as a kid especially, as kind of part of, I think, just growing up and then learning about the world. Um, I, I uh, was raised in a household that was kind of very uh, proactive in the sense that my parents understood that it was a substance that could be managed, much like alcohol is, uh, and, and ultimately it should be uh, decriminalized or legalized. And it's, it's really actually quite remarkable that to see that we've come to this point now. Um, so uh, there was definitely, like, uh, for me, <clears throat> an interest in it and also an understanding that it wasn't something that was uh, meant to be legal. And a lot of the problems that are associated with it are really just kind of from societal constructs rather than the substance itself and, and the, the users. And so um, um, now coming to uh, researching in this area, I would say... I've always been interested in in um, understanding the relationship between cannabis use and schizophrenia, uh. and so I didn't even get into this. But our our lab also focuses on schizophrenia. That's that mental illness component of our substance use and mental illness so this research. Is, this was a big draw for you, exactly that, that relationship with um, definitely. Tell us a little what about but what is schizophrenia and. And what is the relationship with cannabis use? Sure, yeah, and th 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 that's a great question, one we still really don't know the answer to, um, but we're hoping to kind of crack this chicken or egg problem. Uh, is it cannabis use leads to schizophrenia? Is it that individuals with schizophrenia ultimately smoke more cannabis um, through some sort of self-medication process? Uh, we just don't know. Um, so so um, interestingly as well, as in a kind of additional piece to this, is that in, in with with uh, ingestion of cannabis with high levels of THC, it can actually induce psychosis or these psychotomimetic effects, uh, which basically presents itself as like anxiety, uh, um, delusions, etc. And so, so it seems as though there's definitely some sort of like underlying relationship between uh, THC and uh, a schizophrenia or a psychosis. And so we really want to figure out that, that underlying mechanism. Do you have any hypotheses as to what that mechanism might be? Yeah, yeah. thanks for asking. So th getting back to this point about the gamma suppression that we talked about, that gamma hum that was decreased, you also see gamma suppression in patients with schizophrenia, as well as individuals who have rated high on a scale for psychosis or the psychotomimetic effects of THC. Wow. So we're actually postulating that this could be the underlying piece that's connecting these two and then we're going to hopefully dive a little deeper into what on the physiochemical and biochemical level is happening here after THC ingestion that may ultimately lead to the psychotomimetic effects and psychosis yeah wow and wow. you said it was just after one use one instant use, one use first time you see a change in this gamma hum gamma frequency and that's associated with schizophrenia so could it be that just doing it once as a kid could change your risk 
I think it may it may change the susceptibility, but I think there's a lot of other factors that come into play with regards to developing schizophrenia specifically. It's a neurodevelopmental disorder, and so oftentimes we model it with some sort of um, infarct or change uh, in utero or as a neonate. And so I don't necessarily want to come out and say that cannabis use and one instance of cannabis use causes schizophrenia, but I think it, our research is raising important questions and considerations around being able to screen individuals for a susceptibility to developing psychosis or schizophrenia, and ultimately then maybe having appropriate conversations with them if they are thinking about uh, using cannabis, just reframing that kind of consideration. I want to stray away from thinking about it that one leads to the other. I think there's definitely an increased risk toward developing it, but I think there are a lot of other factors that ultimately come into play in order to then lead someone to develop schizophrenia. Um, it, it, my supervisor has established this hypothesis along with some of his colleagues and some of his mentors and supervisors that there's, and it's called the unifying hypothesis. Unifying um, hypothesis. Unifying hypothesis. So he's got a great paper, Dr. Javron Kokar, came out in 2018. Uh, I think it was in psychopharmacology. Uh, I can follow up with that, though. Um, and uh, basically, they're, what they're trying to put forward is it's not that one precedes the other, not that psychosis precedes cannabis use or that cannabis use precedes psychosis or schizophrenia. It's that there's this common underlying biological mechanism. A third mechanism that kind of mediates both? Exactly, exactly, wow. for sure. And it's, it's then we're seeing on the surface level that association, but realistically underneath there's some sort of biological difference that leads one individual to use cannabis and may lead that individual to then develop schizophrenia or lead one individual to only develop schizophrenia even though they may have used cannabis once. Wow, this, not, is, this is uh, real, real powerful work. Uh, I'm excited to see where it goes and it seems like you're like well on your way to uh, getting some really compelling findings. Last thing I want to direct our listeners to is maybe if they want to follow up with you uh, on social media or anywhere you feel comfortable, uh, where, where can they uh, get a hold of Brian Jenkins on the interwebs? So I'll start off with our, our lab contact information. So it's uh, the Neurobiology of Dual Disorders Lab, NODD Lab, at the Ontario Veterinary College and the University of Guelph. Uh, the supervisor is Dr. Gibran Kokar. You can find him on Twitter. He, he's kind of tweeting constantly. Um, we both have, we have a lab profile. It's the Nod Lab or at Dr. J. Kokar Lab. Um, and then uh, Dr. Gibran Kokar for his, uh, for his own personal account. And then for, for myself, uh, you can find me at, on Twitter at bjenkin, so B-J-E-N-K-I-N-2-7. Uh, hopefully you'll be able to find me as well. People can also just reach out to me through my own personal email, which is Brian Jenk or personal website, which is brianjenkins.ca. Um, but yeah, hopefully a, a simple Google search will suffice. Well, Brian, thank you so much for uh, coming onto the show to share all of your research and uh, how the iceberg or what is underneath the surface may just be what is uh, to solve the chicken or the egg problem of schizophrenia and cannabis use. Um, we had a wonderful show today. Again, thank you to Brian Jenkins for being on the show. My name is Roger Hudson, and I'm here with Ariel Frame, our co-host. Uh, if, like if you'd like to watch us or listen to us, every Tuesday we are live at 6 p.m. on CHRW at 94.9 FM in London, Ontario. If you'd like to check out full episodes from our, uh, from our archived shows or any uh, upcoming shows, you can check us out at gradcast.ca. And you can catch us anywhere you listen to your podcasts on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Play. If you'd like to be involved with the show or get in touch with us at all, you can email us at gradcastradio at gmail.com. This has been a production of the Society of Graduate Students at Western University. We will see you next week. Thank you very much for joining us on tour at the Canadian Association of Neuroscience. Have a great day.
Greg Cast theme tune has been composed for us by Matthew Becker. <laughs>